0: for coming. Um, my name's Rick. I'm the studio manager at the MIT Game Lab. And welcome to MIT alumni in the game industry. Yes, there are many, many alumni in the game industry. We grabbed some locals to talk to you about. Um, basically talking about how they got in, um, what it's like to be um, in the game industry It's a full-time job, what it's like making games, and how you can make games professionally. Um, uh, so I just want to start briefly with... Um, talking just a little bit about um, the MIT Game Lab and our parent department. Um, we're part of Comparative Media Studies Writing, um, a uh, department in the School of Humanities, uh, but we work with students from all over the institute, so computer science electrical engineering, uh, architecture, Sloan, um, <coughs> even math, physics, architecture, yeah, I said architecture. So there you go. Um, so yeah, CMS um, is basically looking at analysis, research, and design across a variety of art forms and media forms. Um, we're part of this huge network of research going on in the humanities. Um, our sister um, research labs include things like Digital Humanities, um, Hyper Studio, Center for Civic Media, uh, Mobile Experience, the Open Documentary Lab, the Imagination Computation and Expression Laboratory, which is a <coughs> laboratory that sits across CMS and Core 6, the Education Arcade, um, who, uh from, from then we were kind of born, um, and then the MIT Game Lab. So the MIT Game Web, you can find a ton of information about us at gamelab.mit.edu. Um, the website's getting better every day. Um, hopefully, it's basically me. Um, so if, you're, if you have any information, if you're looking for something that's not there, uh, gamelab-request at mit.edu is the place to go. Um, I'll put that on the, on the last slide today. Uh, basically, what we do is we explore the potential to play, um, and particularly as it concerns games. And for games, particularly as it concerns um, digital technologies and games, Um, but we're not always digital, we do non-digital as well. And we do this basically through the research and development of games, so if you're studying a class with us, if you're conducting research with us, um, if you're coming to one of our events, you're probably making games as part of it. Um, We've got a very hands-on approach. Um, CMS has been called Applied Humanities, it's also been called uh, Humanistic Engineering, Um, but we very much are part of that uh, that MIT uh, men's Um, So. We think about it, but we also do it, and we practice it, and then we talk about it after we've done it. Um, so at the end of all this, I'm going to talk about classes, research opportunities, and events that we offer here at MIT. Particularly uh, in starting in January, we've got a lot of stuff going on in, in January, and it's really cool. Um, but that's it for the background um, for this talk. I'm um, being moderated by uh, Philip Tan, our creative director. Uh, he came from. Um, were you, were you really going to be nuclear engineering when you started out here?
1: Before? No, I was going to be computer science. You are going to be computer science, okay. But you turned into computer media studies. I turned into media studies, yeah. And then
0: you stayed for grad. hmm And you went to Singapore. And then you came back and you started the, the Gambit game lab, which is now the MIT game lab. Um, so, long history at MIT, um, really good focal point for games at MIT and game design at MIT. And,
1: yeah. I'm going to let you take it away. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for everyone who uh, who's who's here uh, to listen to this panel. Uh, this is a great panel with a pretty wide range of uh, experience. Both uh, recent graduates who are probably take, who are very familiar with the same classes that you might be taking right right now. Uh, uh, folks who uh, will probably want, uh, may not be so readily uh, disclosing how old they are, and uh, uh, but then have a lot more experience in the game industry and could be able to share some of their experience as well. So I'm going to call out. Each speaker one by one, and then they're gonna come down. So we're gonna. I wish I had some like good music for this. All right, pick <laughs> All right, so panelist number one is Ethan Fenn from uh, Firehose Games. <laughs> Ethan graduated in 2004 with a double major in courses 18 and 21M. We were talking about the music department. Yep. Here's one of them. Um, soon after graduating, he joined the team at Harmonix, uh, which in case you don't know is down the road, uh, where he worked as a programmer with audio focus on several titles, including Karaoke Revolution Party, Guitar Hero, Guitar Hero 2, and Rock Band. <laughs> so, so after a few years at Harmonix, he met uh, Ethan Gliner, uh, who recently finished uh, well, who, who finished his, his his graduate work at, at Gambit, the, the 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 lab where I'm from, and uh, was working on starting up a new game studio, Firehose Games, and uh, and then Ethan jumped right in at the start of the studio and has been with Firehose since. So since then, uh, you've been responsible for the composition and sound design in uh, Slam bolt Scrappers, Go Home Dinosaurs, and a lot of programming and game design. So welcome, Ethan. Thank you. And, and um, the next person I'd like to introduce is Naomi Hinton. Yay! <laughs> Naomi graduated Course 6-3 in, t- in 2011 and then finished her M.Eng. In, t- in 2012, so so very recently. And while she was at MIT, she was on the, the Europe teams for uh, Poikilia and the Snowfield at the Gambit Lab, and Recently, uh, he was uh, she was working at Learning Games Network, uh, primarily on language le- the le- language learning game Xenos. All right. Next on the list is oh, <laughs> oh sorry. I just trying to make sure that I don't get any of the details mixed up. Uh, next on the list is uh, Damian Isla. Uh, uh, yay! President. <laughs> Co-founder of uh, Moonshot Games, and he's been working and writing on game technology for over a decade. He's uh, uh he uh, before that, uh, he was the AI and gameplay engineering lead at Bungie Studios, where he was responsible for the AI for Halo 2 and Halo 3. So, any players of Halo? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Some people play. Yeah. yeah. So uh, he's a leading expert in the field of artificial intelligence for games, and um, he's uh, spoken on games, AI, and character technology at the International Joint Conference for Artificial Intelligence uh, at AI and Interactive Digital Entertainment Conference, AIDE, and at SIGGRAPH, and of course at the Game Developers Conference. So before joining the industry, uh, he, had, he got his master's at, uh, at the MIT Media Lab, it's in the Synthetic Characters Group. And uh, he and he got his uh, bachelor's from MIT as well, from computer science. Hey, hey, hey. let's <laughs> to keep everybody excited while you know uh, it's very cold today. <laughs> Next, I'd like to call on Patrick Rodriguez. Hey. <laughs> Patrick's a game designer at Muncy Lane Software, and uh, he graduated from MIT in 2012 with a degree in Comparative Media Studies, (laughs) where we are. uh, um, He he now works on Muncy Lane Software at Newburyport, Massachusetts, making educational serious games um, and his most recent project is a corporate training game for a retail chain in Mexico that trains employees how to talk with, to, um, uh, talk with customers uh, to recommend the best product for them. Uh, while he was here at MIT, he was at Europe and the game lab uh, working on uh, Robotny and Movers and Shakers uh, games that, uh, uh, of, that basically teach people some really complex stuff. Um, how to talk to computers and how to talk to people. Yeah, that's really. Good. That's really good. <laughs> All right, so thank you. Uh, Rob Stokes is a senior level designer at the harmonic, at Harmonix Music Systems. Yay. Rob earned uh, uh, his bachelor's in aerospace engineering. Um, y- apparently, you've, you've had to calculate terminal velocity calculations for space stations falling into gravity wells of gas giants. I, I didn't have to. I, I wanted to. You wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> in games, specifically? In Halo 2. In Halo 2, Right. <laughs> Um, so after, um, when, after he graduated from MIT, he attended the American Film Institute in LA, uh, where, uh, where he earned his MFA in writing, and then worked in Bungie for five years, working as a mission designer on Halo 2 and one of the design leads on Halo 3. Uh, he also led up the story development process for Halo 3 and got to do most of the early writing for the missions and the, and the cinematics. After Bungie, uh, Rob co-founded uh, Moonshot Games with, uh, with, with Damian, where he, he, he served as creative director, and currently he's at Harmonix. Um, so, just down the road again. Yay. And, um, and in case you're wondering, does Harmonix hire a lot of MIT graduates? Yes, Mark Sullivan! <laughs> <laughs> final... Uh, He's been working in the game industry for just over two years uh, uh, um, as a gameplay programmer at Harmonix Music Systems on a 2014 title uh, Fantasia, Music Evolved. Uh, Prior to that, he completed his undergrad in in core 6 at MIT in 2010 and then his MNG in 2011. Uh, He worked as a Europe and then a research assistant at the Singapore MIT Game Lab for most of his time at MIT uh, from 2007 to 2011. So basically as long as you were at MIT, you were in the lab. Yeah. That's how I remember Mark, too. So, uh, so a big hand for our entire panel. So I'd like to open up with uh, you know, just what was your first first job in the game industry, and what did you have to do in order to get that job? You know, was, um, was it your first job out of MIT? Or did you do something else before that, Starting with Ethan?
2: Um. So it was actually a little bit before I left MIT, um, junior year, uh, which would have been '03, spring of '03. I wasn't sure yet what I was uh, going to do over the summer, and went to a career fair over at Johnson, and uh, one of the more interesting tables there to me was Mad Doc Software, um, which is now Rockstar, New England. Um, they were there looking for interns for the summer, and I walked up and said, what you got going on? <laughs> that sounds like a fun way to spend the summer. So uh, I sort of lucked out there. I didn't. It wasn't actually a big plan all along to to go into the games industry. You have your resume uh, in hand at that. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did. Cool. Um, uh, so I, I got hired there, and I actually uh, I was hired them by them, but I didn't end up actually working at Mad Dog. Uh, hmm. They had a contract with Impressions Games. Uh, which is an ancient Cambridge studio. They closed in like 2004 or something like that. Um, but I was actually working there on behalf of Dog.
1: So, what was that job? What was.
2: Uh, I was a programmer um, on Lords of the Realm 3. Uh, Impressions was a studio that did lots of city building kind of games. I think they did a, a series called Caesar mm-hmm. and Lords of the Realm, and I'm not sure what else. Um, but I was a programmer there. Um, and one of the people I was working with, uh, James Fleming, uh, was a programmer at uh, MadDoc and then moved <laughs> later to Harmonix. So I had kind of a connection there um, So while I was applying. I,
1: so get to know your coworkers. workers yeah, you, uh, yeah, yeah, it helps. It helps okay. a lot. All right. Um, I'd like to ask Naomi the same question. What was your, um, your first job? Uh, the,
3: the very first was uh, an internship I did, IAP of my a uh, graduate year, I think, uh, <clears throat> at Majesco, which I believe came out of a conversation I had with someone at Boston Indies who who worked there and referred me. So my first full-time job out of MIT was at LGN, and that one was, uh, it came through ha- having met the right people, because... Uh, when I worked on Poikalia, I met Scott Osterweil, because Ed Arcade was the product owner on that. And later, uh, Alex Chisholm from LGN was, had asked for volunteers to help with a game jam they were running. So I uh, already kind of knew people associated with LGN, and then happened to hear when I was going to finish the image that they were hiring. So I ended up getting, a, getting in that way.
1: So... Um Scott Osterweil is a research scientist. Uh, the, uh, he's a creative director uh, of the educational uh, of the Education Arcade Research Group, also in comparative media studies, and Learning Games Network is located.
3: Uh, oh, yeah, in, over near Kendall, near, It's pr- 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 on Third Street.
1: Right, 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 between us and the gallery. Uh, if I recall, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm right. Um, so okay, so so what, what the, what 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 was the job at Majesto? Um, Uh, it it
3: was very brief it was just a month over IAP and I didn't work directly on any of their games I was actually doing uh, software for user analytics for a Facebook game that they were working on
1: so tools basically and data
3: yeah cool cool
1: Right on to Damian Um, um, yeah I mean uh, here
4: uh, in my in my time at MIT I fully expected actually to take more of an academic uh, track in my career but um, the the so that that included the the masters uh, I was working on at the Media Lab, uh, and also a couple of summer internships at Microsoft Research, but it just turned out that all of my research research um, happened to be sort of very game like in form. It was all sort of three D characters and uh, you know virtual worlds and that kind of thing. So um, when I finished off my um, thesis at the Media Lab, the most we, what we were doing there was basically machine learning with three D embodied, you know, virtual characters. So sort of virtual, you know, virtual robotics in a sense. And it was just pretty obvious that the most, you know, the the, the obvious application of the work we were doing was in games. So um, coming out of there, I just, I mean, I really just uh, traveled around and did a bunch of interviews at different places, and uh, and uh, ended up um, partially because I had done a couple of summers at Microsoft. Bungie was a um, was a part of Microsoft at the time, and so um, that was a little bit of a connection there, and so I get, ended up getting hired as an AI programmer on, uh, on what turned out to be uh, Halo 2, uh, before Halo 1 had been a smash breakout success, so like I had never really heard of Bungie before, and I thought, okay, cool, uh, you know, they seem to be making a cool game, and then shortly after I was made the offer, I became aware of like what a phenomenal hit Halo 1 was, and then I was like, okay, yes, I'll take it. <laughs> so that was my
1: that
4: was my experience.
1: So you're working on AI before you knew what what game it was going to be? Like, like you had joined the company to work on AI before.
4: Yeah, right? it's a little bit of a funny. It's a little bit of a funny story where I applied for one game, mm. um, and for various reasons, I didn't end up taking the job. But you know, uh, went back to them a couple months later, saying, "Hey, uh, <laughs> is it, For various reasons, like uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm now back on the market, and then um, and then they were like, uh, "Well, we have this other project, but we can't tell you about it." And then that project turned out to be sequel you know. to the Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. yeah.
1: I, I, so you said prior to that you, were, you had connections at Microsoft and those were internships or yeah uh, I did
4: two summers of internships at Microsoft Research in a, in a research group called Virtual Worlds okay. so they were
1: they,
4: they were one of the many uh, groups at the time working on like virtual chat rooms and stuff like that sort of like a line of research that you know you, you can sort of see second life as the, the culmination of that line of work and also probably the death of that line of work <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So so moving on to to Patrick. Actually, uh, let's let's use the uh, handheld. Oh yeah. <clears throat> oh, great. yeah. Great. So So Patrick, how 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 did you start in the game industry? Um,
5: let's see. Well, I graduated um, in summer of twenty twelve, and over that summer, I was uh, working at the game lab um, for the summer program, working on movers and shakers, and during that time, like I wasn't sure what I was going to be doing afterwards, so I was doing job hunts. Um, and actually through the game lab, uh, I got in touch with people at Muzzy Lane, because um, Scott Osterweil and the Education Arcade, and uh, Steven Shira was also there, who had uh, worked on some projects at Muzzy Lane. Um, so they got me in contact with Burke Snow, who was our uh, lead game designer, and you know, they said that they were looking for a um, serious game designer. And I was like, "Well, I'm working on Movers and Shakers, which is pretty much a serious game.
1: Have you seen it?" (laughs) (laughs) So, so, so it helped that your game was on a tablet that you could just shove in front of their faces. Okay.
5: Um, Yeah, I think I actually met him at the uh, when you guys had the symposium Mm. um, that August of 2012, and so then you know I got an interview, and then eventually got the job, Um, and then I think November 5th would be my one year. So I've just been at Mozilla for the past year, uh, working on serious games.
1: So there was a bit of a lag, bit, bit, bit between graduating and you, know, you, you. spent your last summer at MIT after graduation, mm-hmm. uh, but then, uh, but then there was still a process to be able to land that job. Right. Uh, in, there were in November.
5: A couple months in between where I was still interviewing other places and waiting to hear back from Mozilla.
1: Did you do Europe Swift with? Uh, other labs, like um, the Education Arcade Lab? Um, this... I'm not entirely sure how the relationships
5: work, but I know that uh, we do like design consults, uh, design consults from like Scott Westerweil and other people. Um, I'm not entirely sure exactly how uh, the relationship with development works, because uh, I'm not too familiar with all the projects that they've done. I should
1: probably point out that Scott also teaches a class here at MIT as well called uh, Games for Social Change. So if anybody's interested, and his name's come up multiple times, he's an excellent person to learn from. Uh, and uh, if you're interested in games to, about learning, that's, you know, uh, that's someone that you want to take classes as well. Also Eric Klopfer. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Right, on to Rob. Hello.
6: Uh, yeah, so my entry into games was uh, probably a little <coughs> most. When I left MIT, I had no idea I was going to get in games. I was an aero-astro major, um, but I have always been uh, writing ever since I was a kid, so on a whim I applied to film school because I wasn't really excited about the idea of going and designing some little flat adapter on some airfoil or anything. Um, And I got into a place in L.A., uh, I got MFA in screenwriting there, Um, but then this was around 2000 where there was a writer's strike uh, threatening so it seemed like the worst possible time to be breaking into that business. So I just threw my resume up on monster.com and a game industry headhunter found me there, uh, thinking that this combination of MIT and uh, screenwriting could be compelling to someone, and very quickly they found a startup in Seattle that was looking for a story guy. So they flew me up there, uh, we talked about games, which I've been playing there since I was five years old, And they were convinced that I could, you know, be that writer that they needed and also grown into a designer at the same time. So I got the job there, and within six months I was the lead designer and uh, making some cool stuff. Unfortunately that place uh, ceased to exist a couple years later, but by then I had reconnected with Damian here, and he got my foot in the door. bungee, so that helped.
1: So uh, alum that... Networks and Monster dot com. Yeah, <laughs> and, and
6: probably the unusual combination of educational. It makes it
1: stand out from yeah. from a pool of otherwise similar applicants. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that startup. What 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 were were you doing, was it, again, was it mostly like a uh, creative direction? Uh, it, so initially, the, so the
6: startup was being incubated by Valve at the time, and they wanted us to make a cooperative uh, Mario 64 style game. Hmm. Uh, so initially I was doing both the story development for what this game world was going to be, but at the same time I was learning the tools for using Half-Life 1 engine uh, so I was in Worldcraft which was the old, old editor before Source, and just learning how to build geometry and how scripted, wiring all these tiny purple and orange boxes together um, to create like the demo that we showed to Gabe.
1: Thank you very much. And Mark.
7: Yeah, hello. Um, so yeah, I guess my story is, I know I wanted to get into games for, uh, for a while. I've been playing games since I was you know very young, like five years old or whatever, and uh, in high school I started making my own games. Uh, so that when I uh, came to MIT, and um, found out about the uh, game that I was getting uh, started up. I was really excited because uh, you know, I thought this would be a chance to uh, level up my skills, get better at making games, uh, meet people. Um, and yeah, it did, uh, it did all those things, which was um, really instrumental for me you know, actually uh, getting a job. Uh, so I guess after I graduated, um, I applied to uh, four places. Um, I applied to uh, Harmonix, Fire those Games, Irrational, and Turbine. Um, at two of those places, Harmonix and Firehose, I had um, contacts, uh, Mark Graham and Eton uh, Gleiner, who had, uh, you know, who I would worked with before Gambit. And those are the two places where I ended up getting job offers, and the other two places where I you know, kind of didn't know anyone, um, and never even heard back from them. So it's kind of telling that uh, you know, getting to meet people and work with people as much as you can is uh, pretty important for getting to close the door.
1: So um, that first job that you had that, that 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 you end up taking at Harmonix, right? Yes. Yeah, uh, uh, was, uh, was was what was a programming job, right? But
7: uh, yeah, yeah, I'm a programmer at Harmonix. Um, yeah, that's been uh, my first and so far only job in the games industry. I've been there a little over two years now.
1: Yeah. All right. So um, I'm going to go back from that at this time, since the mic is. Uh, it, 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 it. Is there? And um, I'd like uh, folks to talk a little bit about what they found most useful from the time at MIT for their career in the game industry, whether that was curricular or non-curricular. Uh, you know, uh, anything at all from the time that you were at <coughs> MIT that turned out to be really useful for for uh, for your current career.
7: Okay. Um, well, I won't review myself too much, but uh, as I mentioned, having a year where I got to, you know. Actually, like you know, making games and having a portfolio, having stuff you can show, was uh, you know I thought that was very important. Um, you could probably uh, um, you know get similar experience with an internship. I took the root of off because that was available to me, but um, probably did not want to be fine. Um, some of the uh, you know courses that I, I took that I thought were uh, you know pretty useful, like six double oh five, uh, you know just basic software engineering stuff. Um, some more free-form projects where you get to work on a team, like VIP uh, projects, uh, six two and three seventy, like you know those sorts of programming competitions, where you actually get to work with other people, which is what you end like up doing in the industry. Um, uh, what else? Um, you know, some math classes, like uh, the math I'm uh, using the most is like linear algebra type stuff, working on three D games. Um, I'm forgetting a course number, but there's a practice course here that was awesome. Um, but uh, yeah, um, working on games and building contacts was uh, some of the most useful stuff I did here, I think. Dr. Uh, yeah, I don't know
6: exactly what I did here that was that useful. Um, <laughs> so uh, I was first 16, so I'd probably say if anything. Uh, it was the experience working uh, on some of our senior year uh, project teams because. I mean, AeroAstro is this combination of disciplines, you know, unified, um, where, like, you know, structural mechanics and aerodynamics and thermo and, you know, all these human factors and avionics, they all have to work in concert together. And, you know, game, making games is just as complicated, if not more complicated, because you have all this, you know, these technology problems, but then you have create, creative problems. And uh, very often these things do not, you know, work well together. Um, so yeah, any kind of team environment is probably really helpful. Um, yeah, I think that, that's probably the best I got.
1: Um, how How did you and Damian meet?
6: Oh, we uh, were in the same dorm together. We were in Burton Hall. Burton Hall.
5: So, I uh, see. For me, um, most useful things uh, for me were the EuroOps at the Game Lab. Just uh, being on a team, working on games, doing games research, learning how games are made, uh, was also was really useful. Um, also, all of the classes at the game lab were really useful, especially um, uh, creating video games. I think it was, uh, was um, when I was taking it that, that was the first time that was offered, and that one was really cool because you get to um, work with uh, students who are programmers and also who aren't programmers and you're kind of like learning how to make a game uh, together over a course of a semester, and so at the end you actually have made a video game, which you can say um, you made from start to finish, so you kind of learn that process. Um, let's see what else. So those are pretty much um, two really helpful things to, to do here at MIT. Also, um, uh, game jams. I know that MIT is a, a, a site for the Global Game Jam, which happens uh, in January. Um, it's just like a weekend. Uh, people get together and literally just make a game over the weekend in 48 hours uh, with a theme. And that one's actually really cool because you get people who are students but also who are professionals and also people who have never made a game before and don't know what they're doing. Um, so you can uh, get together in a group and then just make a game uh, and like learn from each other and teach other people and kind of go through that process again. So pretty much anything where you're actually... Uh, get to see the actual process of a game
1: being developed um, would be a uh, useful, a useful resource. Thank
4: you. <clears throat> um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just say that when I when I went here, there were basically no resources whatsoever for for game development at all. Um, The Media Lab was one of the few places where not even games were being made, but game-like things—things that kind of looked like games—were being made. And so I sort of, uh, even though I didn't have like a direct intention of going to the game industry, I did—I did migrate there uh, in that direction since I was interested in graphics and and that kind of thing. Um, Certainly at the time, I mean, like while the classes gave like a really really solid sort of CS background, they're absolutely not what propelled me into the industry Um, it's definitely the extracurricular stuff it's definitely like the year ops that I did at the media lab Um, I started a a student club when I was here for uh, computer graphics we were not a technical club but we were actually interested in using you know basically what was the precursor to Maya at the time to do sort of like more artistic computer graphics, so little, little animated shorts and that kind of thing. And I know that that was like instrumental in me getting an internship at Microsoft, which led to Bungie and, and other things. So now, nowadays you have like tremendous resources, of course, so like I can't, I can't speak to exactly what classes were useful, but, um, but definitely like the, the, the research that I did at the time was, was what uh, made it for me.
1: Is this Bruce Bloomberg's group? Exactly, yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. 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 Um, yeah, and a bunch of his alumni went on to, you know, like the, the tech director of, 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 of Irrational was another oh, uh, Bruce cool. student, and cool. um, a bunch of us went into the industry.
1: Um, you said Europes. You, did you start Europeing with them before you became a uh, grad student? That's
4: right, exactly, yeah, with oh, yeah. that same group. Same
1: group, all right. Mm-hmm. All right, and then... Um, I had another question, but it's so, so I'll get back to that.
3: Neil? Uh, yeah, definitely agreeing with everything Mark and Patrick said about uh, why the Gambit apps are really useful. Um, working on a team, having something you can show a, at job interviews, even non-game job interviews. They're really impressed if you can pull up something you worked on, which it, not everybody does if you're a, a programmer. Obviously, if you're an artist, you're going to show up with a portfolio, but as a programmer, it's nice to have something to show. Um, also, getting experience with technologies that p- uh, people are interested in using, like Unity. Uh, and oh, and also uh, a specific class that hasn't been mentioned yet is uh, I took Chris Weaver's class, uh, Media Art, Industries and Systems. I think is the name.
1: Uh, Media Industries and Systems. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
3: maybe. <laughs> uh, and uh, so that that was a class where we made a game, but also. Uh, we were forced to integrate the marketing side of it, which is not something i do and not something I ever really wanted to do, but I think it was good for me to have the, the experience of having to think about the game in a marketing context as well as in a production context.
1: There's a lot, a lot of pitching in that yeah. class. Yeah.
2: Um, I think for me, what, what turned out to be the most useful, I was a math and music major, um, was a class that I took senior year called uh, Composing with Computers. I don't know if that's a class that still exists or not, but it was a great class, my favorite by far. Um, And it was all about uh, the different ways that people had used electronics to make music, starting with the the people who uh, literally just sliced up magnetic tape that had audio recorded on it and taped it together and and did different things uh, into the digital era. Um, And... It was interesting in two ways. The first way the sort of indirect way is just it it set me on this path of exploring the space between programming and and sound and music and composition which is really where I've spent most of my career Um, but also more directly uh, I was just really excited at the time about this stuff and was in my spare time uh, writing code to synthesize sounds and process sounds and all this stuff Uh, and so when I was interviewing at Harmonix I probably talked about this a whole lot and uh, it turns out at the time the person who was responsible for all of the audio systems programming there had left recently, so that was kind of a huge coincidence. And I'm sure they were excited to see somebody coming in and, and being so excited about this thing, which is kind of a niche interest, not something that most programmers are really into. I think
1: so you were doing this for class, by the way. You're also like doing it outside of yeah, class. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Very much outside of class.
1: Are you part of the band?
2: Uh, I play in a jazz band at Harvard. Yeah. Harvard grad student band. There's no reason to be there. But. <laughs> 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 they never fill all the seats.
1: Just, uh, just, just. Uh, I was just uh, uh, doing a search. Electronic music composition. I think is what they call the class uh, okay. There's a two mm-hmm. parts, um, uh, two different parts each. each um, one so, one one fall semester and one spring semester class. Okay. Uh, let's see. Moving on to to our next question. Um, here we go. Okay. So. So this is to flip it around, uh, you know, in retrospect, what did you wish you had available to you when you were a student uh, while, while, while you were a student and you, know, you were thinking, if, uh, uh, for, for, for some of you, you may not have been considering going to the game industry, but what do you wish you had available to you uh, when you were a student before you, you entered the game industry?
2: Uh, well, that's an easy one for me. Hearing all these people talking about Gambit and all that stuff that they offer, because that didn't exist when I was <laughs> when I was here. Um, so I had really not much experience at all working in games, um, and it's a it's a different thing working in a multidisciplinary team like that. And I don't think really anything uh, that I experienced here through my coursework really prepared me for that. So man, I wish I had some classes like that and some game labs <coughs> and things like that.
1: Were there other things at MIT that might have been available? I don't know, is like class. Yeah, that's um, a great question. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know.
3: I mean, the, the thing that always really disappointed me at MIT was that none of the game people were actually in the computer science department. You had, you had to go over to uh, CMS or at um, Arcade over in the teacher education program to find people who were working on games. And it was always kind of sad that nobody in my actual department was doing any of this. But students were. No, stu- students were, but I mean, there, there, were, there weren't really any CS professors who concentrated on game things.
4: No, that 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 is actually a really good point. We just, it's it's sad that that's still true now uh, because that was absolutely the case. Um, I, uh, even at the Media Lab, there was a little bit of a, I think there was a, always a little bit of stigma around games. Like, it's not real. It's not really that interesting. It's kind of a, you know, I mean, maybe from a certain point of view, it's, it's, it's true it's not computer science anymore. It's more, you know, production systems and, you know, performance and stuff like that. But, um but yeah, it's true that it's it's sad that there's not a lot of engagement from Core Six itself. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, while certainly Gambit uh, or the Game Lab ha- didn't exist when I was there, um, um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the team uh, team interaction uh, type stuff I did get from the Media Lab, and I think that was partially because my group happened to be one of those groups that was very cohesive worked on a one big project together and so essentially I did get that experience of working in a small group in an intense way working on a product you know on these famous you know the the famous media lab demos right We'd, we'd work on these big SIGGRAPH demos and like we'd you know kill ourselves for four months and you know put something on at SIGGRAPH or something like that so I actually I mean I feel like in a lot of ways that experience really prepared me well for the game industry um I don't think I faced anything in the game industry that was, like, totally um, unexpected. Um, I, I certainly wish that, in general, there was, like, more engagement from, uh, between MIT and the industry. Um, I think that's something that, Philip, you guys are now, I think, working on. But I would love, you know, I would have loved to have had uh, Peter Molyneux come and give talks or Will Wright or, you know, to be able to, like, actually pick the brain of some of the greats of the industry and, and learn about it from a...
0: You know, it wasn't until I left
4: MIT that I really started to learn about game design as like this really interesting practice, this really interesting this art form that um, I would have liked to have heard a lot more about the creative process.
7: But that being said,
4: not having, not having
1: gotten that, I don't think hurt me in any way. But there are opportunities to get those talks outside of MIT um, by merit of being in Boston, I think, right? So if students well, now that all the other universities are picking up the the slack that MIT has, yeah,
4: yeah left, yeah. yeah but I'm also sure.
1: conferences, a lot of conferences uh, here, like um, uh, like PAX, where there's well, a lot of speakers. And sure, PAX is, and obviously
4: PAX is very new. It's only been four years, maybe, three, years?
1: Yeah. three? two, maybe, yeah. not even, yeah. So 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 yeah, uh, the definitely try to. Um, Look, look, look but another thing is that
4: like going to Pax and sitting in the back of a massive massive mm. room is very different from doing a round table with you know someone who can you know who might be invited in um, you know which you know the media lab is like a fantastic place for this by the way i mean they bring mm. in uh, they bring in people for talks but then there's always an opportunity for students to sit down with them and just like ask them questions and chat uh, yeah. i i sat down with like Michelle Gondry the director uh, a couple months ago at the media lab and it was like Freaking ex-
1: amazing experience! Like more of that. You know. As as a former MIT Media Lab undergraduate, you are myself. I want to say, whenever your advisor or the director of your lab invites you to a roundtable with a guest, do a little googling to figure out who this person is before you show up. Because chances are, <laughs> this person is incredibly well qualified and has lots of really interesting to say. And if you haven't even thought about what their work is, uh, that that, that's a downside. So get ready for guests <laughs> uh, that, That's one thing I would, I would suggest. Okay. Um,
5: I'm not entirely sure what I wish would have been there while I was here. Um, but I guess uh, one thing was that I wish I would have taken more advantage of. Um, <clears throat> I guess it would be like uh, being able to network and meet people, especially because... Uh, you know the game lab does do a lot of like outreach and um, have a lot of events and guests and stuff. Uh, especially while, or while I was there, and I assume now do uh, a little slower, but okay. <laughs> uh, but you know, being able to you know talk with people and you know ask questions and learn what other people are doing, uh, even um, within the department, just like seeing what other researchers are doing and learning about their research and stuff like that, uh, was something I wish I had taken more advantage of. Um, I guess one thing that I did wish I had was, uh, or that I did wish was more available, was um, game making tools. Mm-hmm. Like being able to, like I know it's probably hard with uh, MIT schedules and stuff, but just being able to like, work on a personal project um, of a game by yourself. Uh, I mean, like now there are a whole bunch of uh, more research resources. Like uh, Unity is more accessible, and uh, Construct 2 is a really cool engine, and Twine is a thing. Um, such as like being able to uh, work on personal projects um, before graduating, I guess, was something that I wish I had done more of.
1: So um, there are a couple of opportunities for folks to make network contacts while they're in Boston. Boston <coughs> Indies and Boston Post Modem, for instance. But if you were a student going into one of those environments, how would you prepare for women? Like... Given that, you know, I, 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 I'm guessing you go to postmortem mortem
5: quite a bit. I don't know about it. Yes. Um, hmm. That I'm not sure of. I haven't really encountered many students there, actually.
4: Mm-hmm. They actually base it in Waltham to keep the students out. That's the <laughs> funny thing. They actually, they actually specifically put it off of the public transport so that it's oh, a little wow. bit hard. Okay. So students have to be extra special motivated to get there. You know, okay. they've, they've
3: moved it to Tommy Doyle's now.
4: Oh, have <laughs> I think that was a mistake. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, while, 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 while Boston Postmodern which is the um, IG, IGDA chapter of uh, Boston uh, meets in Harvard Square take advantage of that because it's right on the red line um, and uh, before they move it back to Waltham again and then you have to drive out <laughs> but maybe the takeaway is take the effort to go to these networking events yes. and get to know people um, I think especially
5: the um, Boston Indies Demo Night which happens I think once every few months or something mm-hmm. I think that one's a really good uh, event to go to because you have um, people, a lot of uh, independent developers who are um, presenting you know, prototypes of their games <clears throat> so you can uh, play games you know, as they're being made and be able to actually talk with the developers and ask questions and things like that. Um, so the, the demonites, I think, are really useful. And that's on the Silver Line?
1: Is that right? Um, uh, it's on the waterfront. So It's a, it's a pretty uh, short walk. I mean, you just walk from south, south Station. South, south, yeah. south, south Station, yeah. Yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Right. Rob?
6: Um, yeah. So it's already been said, uh, a lot of things like the game lab didn't exist back in my day. Um, I am curious if, if it did, if it would have changed my decision of major. Because, you know, like I said, I played video games as a kid, and you know, I went course sixteen because I thought I was going to build the land tower. So maybe <laughs> a, a better uh, approach would have been to get game into games if there had been something like that uh, to draw my attention. Um, But to just throw out something random, uh, I wished back in my day that there were more art classes here. I I don't know if that's gotten any better, but um, it sounds like maybe not. (laughs) Uh, I think I found one in Course 4, which was fun, it was great. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think my favorite classes were that, and a writing science fiction class taught by Joe Haldeman. And I just wish there was more of that stuff because, you know, games is inherently creative, and... I think MIT students could benefit from having more creative
1: outlets in their curriculum. So. At, MIT totally could use more art classes. Uh, for for uh, the existing set of resources, the visual arts program, please do check the the, the catalog for what they offer. Um, the, um, you can also, uh, there's a student art program, if I, I, I remember the, the, the name of it, I believe they have a place in the student center, and uh, they have... You know, not for credit classes uh, that, that that you can take, and a ton of IAP classes. So this is about the right time to start uh, looking for the art programs. If you are interested in doing it for credit, the Museum of Fine Arts, uh, sorry, the School of Museum of Fine Arts and Mass Art all have cross-registration programs with MIT. It's a bit of a trek to get out there um, during the winter, in particular, uh, but it's worth it. it. It absolutely is worth it. These are top-notch art schools. Um, the other
6: thing I'll say is that uh, you know, working in places like Bungie, there, at architecture backgrounds, mm. so taking what is available in course four, um, if you're looking to get into design specifically,
7: uh, could be useful. So, yeah. Mm. Right. Cool. Um, yeah. So, things I wish I had done a little differently. Um, yeah. So, some of the uh, getting involved with the community, like folks said, like uh, uh, things like Boston Indies, Boston Postmortem, uh, Boston Unity Group. Um, like, at Boston Postmortem, for instance, there were always like a lot of harmonics people there. Until fairly recently, one of the people on the board for Boston Postmortem was uh, a recruiting person for harmonics. <coughs> um, not true right now, but uh, um, yeah, it's you know, great to be able to meet people. I didn't really uh, get involved in that um, pretty much until I started in the games industry, and there wasn't really a good reason why I couldn't have started earlier. Um, I also uh, things ended up working out, but I you know might have wished that I did an internship or something to actually um, you know work at a company and get to know people at a company. Because um, what ended up happening for me is that I kind of graduated and I was like, oh crap, I need a job now. And, you know, scramble at the last minute, um, and it ended up working out. But uh, you know, it might have been a little easier if I knew more people in the industry. Um,
1: so. Uh when when students or recent graduates apply for internships in jobs and jobs at a company, um, it, what seems to be like some good indicators for a good applicant, and what are some of the things that you tend to see missing from from, from applicants that you would that you wish you saw more more often?
7: Um, so uh, personally, I haven't uh, conducted any interviews. Um, but uh, I mean, I think what I you know would look for is evidence that they are uh, you know competent in their field. Of course, so if it's a programmer, making sure that they know what they're doing. Um, like uh, when I was applying, I had to do a couple of um, take-home coding tests, and when I went in for my interview, they had me do like coding on the whiteboard and stuff like that. Uh, you know, making sure that they can um, you know they can think on their feet. But uh, you know, if you give them time like they would have during a workday, usually put something together. Um, you know, I would want to see evidence that they've, you know, worked on games. Um, uh, it'd be nice if there's evidence that they uh, worked on games with other people, in particular, um, outside. Of, like if, if they're a programmer who's worked with um, artists and sound folks, then that's a really good sign. Um, you know, so I know they're just another programmer who doesn't really talk to people and does not know how to work well with others. Um, so, yeah, that's what's really good to see. In the topic.
6: Um, so speaking specifically about designers, um, in, in my career I've only actually known one design intern. This was back at Bungie, I think of Francois, um, and that was kind of a special case. Like we didn't actually do design interns, but uh, you knew some people. So once you know, again, the networking thing. Um, but uh, you know, he came in having worked with a team at his school that made a, a game, was effectively a mod, but. It was still a, a team environment where he was the leader of that team, and he had something to show for it. Um, and he also had a CS background, and so he was very technical, very smart. He, you know, we were confident that he could just jump into our script and have no problems whatsoever, and it turned out to be true. Um, so after his internship, we made him an offer, and he accepted, and he was one of the designers on Halo 3. Um, but really, that's the only example I've got. Typically, again, just among designers, of... Uh, Don't get that many people fresh out of school, Um, at least in my experience. So maybe others
5: have better stories. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I can only also speak to designers. Uh, One thing I would say is that uh, at Muzzy Lane, of the you know three other game designers that I work with on a daily basis, um, I'm the only one who actually knows how to code, and you know it. Really depends on you know what kind of game design you're doing and what kind of games you're making, but just having <coughs> some kind of you know at least minimal background in how programs work uh, is actually really helpful because um, I find myself a lot of the time actually looking into you know the XML files and the scripts to you know debug things when you know, I can't ask a programmer how to how to fix something. Um, so just having at least a little bit of a programming background might be useful. Um, also, uh, what was the other thing I was going to say? Oh yeah. Also, uh, when we look at um, like we we're hiring some design interns, and one thing that we're also looking for now is um, uh, to see um, what you know, to see what games they've worked on, um, especially now with such easy tools to make uh, to make games. You know, have has this person any games on their own, you know, even if it's just, you know, a really small, short thing, um, do they know how to use, you know, uh, game-making tools in addition to, uh, knowing, design theory and stuff like that? Um, um,
4: yeah, I mean, I think, um, so I, am an engineer, um, by background, so most, most of what I do is programming, um, and I think the answer is very different, um, We've, they, these guys have touched on, but it's very different uh, if you're talking about evaluating a designer versus an engineer. I I'm, I principally evaluate engineers. Um, though on the design side, the point about coding is like absolutely spot on. Like everybody who works in the game industry should code, as far as I'm concerned. Even if you're an artist, you should know how to like script. You know, to, to uh, you know, you, not everyone knows how to script who's an artist, but like it's always a, a huge bonus if you're like can demonstrate like technical competence. Um I think if you're a des- I think if you're a designer like having your own projects that you can point to and say hey here's a game jam game or here's my personal project game that I took sort of to a reasonable level of completion and look you can play it it's fun um I think for a designer that that is important um I think for an engineer it's becoming less and less important I mean I I, a couple years ago i would have said oh yeah go out and make a bunch of games and you know have a portfolio of games and now everybody has their games you know like every single resume i get is like oh here are the links to my four games that i've worked on in my spare time and i will be damned if i go and play any of them you know i don't i don't have the time so i think for 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 an engineer nowadays um um I would say, first of all, having a specialty of some kind is really, really helpful. Um, when I, you know, if, if I get 100 resumes, like 80 of them will be, I want to be a generalist gameplay programmer. Uh, and that it, that is indeed one of the funnest jobs, but it's also like one of the hardest to evaluate. Like you just got to be generally good. Um, whereas if you sort of if you put your you know stake in the ground and say i'm going to be a graphics programmer and look at this awesome like radiosity engine that i built like i am much more interested in seeing an engineer who has solved a really hard problem and done it in an interesting and novel way than i am in seeing an engineer who you know made a simple game because everybody can make a simple game thousands and thousands of people make simple games so what i would be interested in is is seeing like a really solid part of a game that solves a hard problem that is not trivial.
3: It's kind of, it's interesting what you said about how you're saying that in mo- most of the resumes you get, uh, people have done their own games because actually I have had a, a different experience, which is, uh, when I think it was last summer when LGN was getting applications for interns, we were hiring interns ab- across a bunch of disciplines, but I was looking at the resumes for the programming interns. And so this is still at the resume stage before we're, we're even getting to the interview or anything. And so we had a lot of applications for a relatively small number of positions. And so one thing that we used to filter on, because we didn't even really have the resources to interview all of them, is you would not believe how much it cut down the pile of resumes to filter it down to just the people who had expressed some interest in games. Because pretty much all of them, since they're applying for a programming position, seem to have technical qualifications. But relatively few of them seem to have done anything with games before or expressed interest in that particularly. So so I think at the bare minimum, you have to show on your... Uh, your resume—that this is something that you're particularly interested in—as opposed to you are looking for a programming job and this is one of the ones you're applying to.
2: Uh, I mainly just want to echo a few things. I don't have too much new to add here, I think, but um, uh, yeah, absolutely, don't just send the same resume out to game studios and financial firms and <laughs> restaurants and whatever. <laughs> Um, know who you're applying to and, and make sure it's relevant everything that you're saying there um, I actually really like to see games and, and game links that I can just click on and play right away um, and we actually really do look for people who are very into games um, and and not necessarily into any specific discipline so it's interesting we have very different criteria that we look for um, uh, because you know we we we're nervous about people who come in and say i 'm an AI programmer that 's what I want to do um, and then have somebody who really just wants to do AI programming all the time and when they have to do other things because there 's different things to do uh, in a small team in particular they they 're going to be unhappy about it um, so I, I guess that just still speaks to the fact that you should know what kind of place you 're applying to and if it's a bigger studio, absolutely, you should probably call out a specialty. Um, and if it is a, a scrappy little indie studio, maybe not. Maybe it's better to just show that you can work on a team and you're passionate about games.
1: I, I guess also that means pay attention to the job that you're applying to. Uh, you know, the job calls has a lot of telling information. Um, the number of times that students have come to me asking for a recommendation or uh, you know advice on where to apply to. Um, and they, they know which companies they want to work for, but, it, but then when I ask them, so which job at the company from their jobs board that's on, the, on their website that you're actually interested in, it says, I don't know. And it's like, well, then you're not paying close enough attention and maybe you don't actually know what it is that, y- that you personally bring to the table that will, uh, that will be attractive to an employer. Um, you need to be able to make that, to, to, to come to that understanding of, if it's really sort of general gameplay, then not only are you also looking for companies uh, that are looking for that sort of skill set, you're a general game pro- programmer, you're also looking for the jobs within those companies. You don't write to an AI job call uh, saying, I just want to do ge- general game pro- pro- programming. And I guess if, if it's unclear, do you think it might be fair to give a phone call and ask? Or maybe just send an email and say, what sort of um, specifically... Um, what 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 does this job require? If the if the job description is too vague. Well,
4: if you can find a phone number on the website, yeah. I'd be amazed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe an email then. Yeah, yeah, yeah email okay. is probably better. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. Although I would say if if you're in any doubt, just uh, write what you're what you're into and what you want to do because you know that's the job you want to find, really. <laughs> I also think that, like, I, and I, I meant to mention this before, but, like,
4: absolutely one of the, I mean, maybe this doesn't even need to be said, but one of the absolute greatest advantages you have is the three letters MIT on the top of your resume. Like, that, I mean, it's just true. that Like, it, immediately that comes to the top of the stack, and you're like, can we justify interviewing this person? It doesn't even, like... So at the point where you're, like, talking about, like... Um, I guess I would just say that like I wouldn't be dissuaded if I don't see what I want necessarily mm-hmm. especially on the bigger studios right. if I don't see what you know what I want to do uh on on the job listing page like I would just email laugh anyway and mention hi I'm an MIT student I go to MIT and I've been at MIT and I, <laughs> and, uh, um and uh, MIT MIT um I'd like this kind of job and and you're going to more likely get a response.
1: Yeah. I think I have actually heard that from some recruiters. It's like, it's like you know, don't always wait for the job call of your dreams to get your resume in. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But if you do send your resume in response to a job call, at least know what that job call was for. <laughs> <laughs> um so uh, we have a little bit of time before questions. I, and um, one thing that was asked from the panelists was, do we, are we trying to scare you away from the game industry? Or are we trying to attract you to the game industry? And I think you need to hear some of the gory de- details about what it's like to actually work in the game industry. And I'm wondering if there's anything that you'd like to share about things that you wish you knew about the game industry before you went in so that these folks could go in with their eyes open. This, there's no order to this one. Is this, you know, I didn't prepare you for this one. So, <laughs> if anyone has any
3: thoughts, uh, I think my biggest pieces of uh, job-seeking advice have been said already, repeatedly. Uh, one, one being network, network, network. Like get to know people in the industry in a social context, even before you're necessarily looking for a job, because it it will be so so helpful. Later on, when somebody's offering a job and you, you actually know who that person is and can just go up and ask them about it uh, and number two, being show and tell i 'll have something to show in the interview as in lo, it is a thing I have made <laughs> I,
4: I would also I, I would say that like we, we are always this is always true but it 's especially true now that like the industry is just always in tumult you know it's always like companies are falling and companies are rising and technologies are falling and rising and you know when i joined the industry the you know it was the heyday of the xbox and the playstation and now um you know while the new consoles are sold well in their first 24 hours um um, that's it 's not where it 's happening anymore like is, is is my sense of the industry you know so like there 's all these new technologies that you know h t m l five is important and mobile is absolutely huge and and like free to play like just embarrassingly dwarfs anything that people will pay for, which has design implications and engineering so i guess i w- I guess all of that is just to say that like the advice that I think any of us Give is inherently limited because we are constantly, you know, we're we're born in an age that is already passing, and something new is going to be the 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 big business for you guys. So um, I I don't know. I don't know what that means, except like really, you know, pay attention to the news and to the you know to, to the blogs and see what's hot, and you know maybe jump into something that's new where there's not as much sort of established.
1: You know, stuff there. Would you say that it's um, it's hard to feel really prepared all the, uh, for for the jobs that, that that are ahead of you? That, you know, because things are changing so quickly. Um. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I, I I guess I just think that the
4: industry changes like it feels like from year to year. The you know what what is big is changing constantly. So um, so. I mean, I guess one thing is just prepare, be prepared to keep learning and, and, like, be prepared that even if you had your heart set on, you know, working on a big console game, what you might end up working on is a, you know, web-based free-to-play, and uh, and that's okay. <laughs> you know, like, those uh, there are interesting challenges technologically and design-wise there as well. So.
5: I guess I'll piggyback off of that. <clears throat> and I'll piggyback off of that and say that, like, uh, especially um, with Muzzy Lane, we do a lot of contract work, and so we make games for you know different companies and different groups, uh, which also means making games on different platforms and you know uh, to be played in different contexts. So you know we get we might get a contract in that says you know we want to make a game for iPad, and if we've never done a game for iPad, it's like well we can still bid for the contract and then you know figure out how iPad works or. Uh, um, if they want to do like a museum exhibit, you know, we'll be learning a bunch of different technologies, and that's just something that you know you have to learn to adapt to. Yeah. Uh, two things
6: I'll add as far as so you should be prepared for. Diana already hit on one, which is the stability angle. Um, you know, be prepared for you know getting a job and then having the publisher disappear a month later, and uh, you know. Uh, doing probably the lifestyle is not that different, but yeah, working like 18 hours in a day or something four months and, you know, seven days a week at times, like Halo 2's crunch was one of the epic ones of all time, and I think I did it for like nine months, seven days a week and by the end I was sleeping four days, or four hours a Um but it's like a risk reward work thing. so, you know, if you want a stable job where you make good money you know, go to Wall Street or something, but really you creative tool that, you know, is going to, like, set the world on fire, yeah, you're going to have to take some risks. And, uh, that, you know, that's just comes the
4: territory. Right? I mean, the thing to say about the Halo 2 crunch as well is that as, like, like it, you know, I, I still wake up with cold sweats, you know, think I'm back in Halo 2. But um, um But, God, at least there was Halo 2 at the end of it. Which was, like, a very well-accepted game that everybody on Earth played. Like, chances are, like, I mean, I hate to say it, but, like, the, you know, a lot of people crunch like that, and then their game gets panned and no one plays it. And that's, like, freaking, like, soul-crushing. So, anyway, that's going to happen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and projects get canceled. Even after or or they get
4: canceled, sure. Yeah. yeah, Which is what happened with our, I mean, our first game uh, at Moonshot was, you know, a game we poured our, our, our heart into for about a year, and then it, poof, you know, disappeared, yeah, essentially.
1: Um, I see a lot of students uh i I get a lot of uh, uh requests from students who basically want to join the biggest companies on the map uh you know they're they are they are the companies that made the games that that everyone in their dorm knew best and uh, as well as them themselves and often they oh, they're, they're the ones also with the largest job boards which is on in some ways it makes sense but um, since we've got a pretty good spread of different uh, uh, folks from different sectors, I'm wondering what your opinion of that would be. Like, Is that where you focus your efforts on, the really large game companies, or your first job out of, out of college?
3: I, personally, I, I think I prefer the indie environment because uh, it, it's kind of smaller and friendlier, and I, I think you can take more... Ownership of the, the game if you're one of a fairly small team, team working on it, as opposed to, I don't know, how many people work on World of Warcraft? <laughs> and they're probably each just doing a tiny little bit of it.
6: They're actually designers per class. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah,
7: so I think I agree with what Benjamin said. Uh, basically, especially if you're just coming out of school, it might not be a bad idea to consider a small new place. Um, you know, you're going to have uh, more creative freedom there, um, and, you know, those are often, um, you know, less stable in the long run than bigger places, and, uh, you know, kind of when you're first coming out of school is probably when you can, you know, afford a bit more of that instability and uncertainty, you know, the greater risk reward. you know, if you there, then awesome. Um, but, you know, later, later in life, you might want, you know, something more uh, stable, and, you know, bigger companies might be better at that stage.
6: Um, I'll I'll kind of agree. Uh, The first place I was at was about 20 people as a startup. Uh, Not exactly Indian Indian investors, but um, it's good to be on a team size that's, you know, where you know everyone's name and you can actually learn. Um, You know, these bigger teams that are hundreds of people, like you just end up being a cog and you might know your small circle but you're not necessarily going to be rubbing elbows with all the different artists and animators and engineers and all the different parts of the team. So I definitely would suggest looking for a place that's uh, you know in that indie to small uh, you know publisher, Xbox Live Arcade, whatever it is that they're working on, but um, something where you can actually learn stuff, and then from there decide if you're going to specialize or if you want to branch out and make your own company or whatever it is you might want to
2: do. I would add that. first off I agree that I love small teams and I never want to work at a huge studio again. Um, but, uh, for just starting out, it might make sense to apply to some bigger studios just because they might be looking for more entry level staff. I'm not even sure about that. It's, it's hard to say. Um, but, uh, you know, as somebody starting out, you're, you're going to need a lot more training and I think bigger studios are better equipped to kind of handle that and, and get people on board. Um, and another reason you might want to look at bigger studios, if you, if you are a very focused person and you want to work on this very precise uh, part of the big picture and you know what that is, uh, you're probably more likely to, to find that a in big, a bigger place. Yeah, I, 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 oh, I'm sorry. sorry, sorry.
5: Um, I was going to say also, uh, consider the educational or serious game space because it is a completely different... A completely different beast than, I guess, the, um, you know, uh, entertainment games uh, industry part. Uh, it's different, different audience, different design philosophies, different uh, markets, and um, I guess like, Muzzy lane has been a company for a really long time, but we're still only about 20-25 people working in small groups. Um, I guess it's just, I have not worked in, you know, the other uh, game spaces, but, you know, this. Uh, where I'm at seems, you know, pretty, pretty interesting and pretty cool um, as a, uh, I guess, a different, different spot in the games industry.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I, um, I, I go back and forth as to whether I think, you know, one should sort of start in a small company or in a large company. Um, I, I agree with what Naomi and and, um, and other people have said that I think creatively as an experience. Working in a small team in a really small company is more fun than you'll have anywhere else, but I'm not necessarily sure that it's the most educational, um, and um, and I'm not necessarily sure that um, you know you will you will undergo as much professional development as you would as if you were working on a on a on a bigger studio. So I, I feel like um, I feel like my advice would always be go with a a pro studio, go with a professional studio that actually can teach you how things are done and has a track record of shipping and shipping on time and under budget and like understanding trade-offs of money and performance and, and all this different stuff. Um, Muzzy Lane seems like such an interesting place for that reason. It seems very rare to have something that is that small and yet, and yet, um, so stable because they've been around for a reasonable amount of time. Like that's, um, I mean, maybe it is because they have that serious games um, angle, you know, so that they have good contacts in that area uh, or whatever. But um, 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 I I was always thinking when I was first starting to think about going into the game industry, I was, I really was interested in starting my own company. And, um, you know, now I I thank the stars that that didn't work out because I learned far more at, at a large studio at, at Bungie than I ever would have starting my own company. Like I just, you know, I, I learned so much more about process and production and 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 what it actually means for two large teams to interact. You know, you know how does engineering need to talk to design? How does design need to talk to art? What are the practical nitty gritty of 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 how you make a large system like that work? Um, just from an organizational point of view. So uh, I, I think there's a lot to be said for for the large studios, I guess that's what I would say.
1: So far we've heard a couple of uh, anecdotes about internships as well, and uh, large companies, uh, there are certain, a few large companies out there that actually have well-organized internship programs where they will go out to universities and recruit. Um, on one hand, that's great, but it's because they've got, if they've got a plan, they know what to do, you know, when you actually arrive on day one. Um, maybe they even have a plan on how to get you out to the company. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you're competing against a lot of people for that because they are actively trying to gather as many resumes as, uh, as they can. Um, if you're going out to certain companies, um, especially to smaller companies, which may not have an organized intern program but might be willing to take on an intern, the number of people you're competing against is probably pretty small. Uh, and, uh, and if you can just distinguish yourself through, through your resume and your interview and your portfolio, it might be a slightly easier route to get that internship. Uh, so, maybe um, if you're, that's, that's, that, that's just something that, that I'm noting regarding the chances of landing is something like a summer internship, especially as we go into internship recruitment season here at MIT. Um, don't always wait for them to come to you. Sometimes you got to, actually, very often, you have to go out there and get your resume out before they've started asking for it. Um, so, any parting shots before we open it to questions? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, alright, so uh, uh, I'd like to open it to questions now. Uh, any, um, uh, what, what I'll do is actually I'll run up with the microphone, the portable microphone, so that uh, everyone can hear the questions. well. Oh.
3: To how kind of dynamic the industry is. Um, I heard from a couple of you that um, you started at certain places that were absorbed or split off um, from other like, large companies. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about maybe like the mobility between companies or between groups that you found in the
1: industry and whether this is um, like a primary factor in choosing a first job.
6: Alright. that? You <laughs> Uh, I'll just say that. Um, uh, so, just recently, uh, I've been at Harmonix for a year now, and I've already been on three different project teams there. Um, the first one uh, was what I was alluding to. We lost the publisher a month after I was hired, um, and so I got moved on to Fantasia with uh, Mark here. Uh, and then, you know, as Fantasia was wrapping up, it's because Harmonix is a large uh, company and has multiple teams going at once, I got moved on to yet another one. Um, and even that one, at times, things have looked a little dicey and, you know, there's internal green light meetings and things that, you know, we don't know if it's going to be around the next, uh, you know, month. Um, so, you know, certainly within a company, there, there can be a, a lot of mobility, not necessarily for good reasons. There's also layoffs and things like that that happen when these big changes happen. Um, it was also true at Blizzard. You know, there's uh, five teams there when I was on Titan and there's a fair amount of uh, movement between those teams. They had an internal uh, like career opportunities page like or, or email that would go out every uh, few weeks, so that you could see, oh, the the World of Warcraft team has got an opening for a quest designer. I'm going to apply for that. And that would always go out before it would be made available to the you know the rest of the world. Um, but uh, and then of course you do see a lot of. Incestuous moving about between companies, like especially here in Boston where there's not that many big studios, you'll need people who are like, Oh, I was at Harmonix, and then they went to Irrational, and then they went back to Harmonix, and things like that. <laughs> um, it's also true in, in uh, back in LA, like there'll be people who were uh, you know, at Blizzard, and then they went to work for uh, Carbine, and then they come back to Blizzard. Um, so, I mean, this anything, gets to the idea once again that having those strong networks, you know, uh, are really important. So you don't burn your bridges; you can always go back uh, to, to places you've been before. Uh, you know, there's people at Bungie who left and then went back. Um, so you know, if anything, just keeping those you know connections open so that when things do go awry, you have options.
4: It's true that there's a couple of cities I think that are really great to be game developers in, and I think. LA is one of them. San Francisco is one of them. Seattle is awesome. Um, I I feel like starting, people always talk about the risk of, you know, how much of a risk it is to make a startup. But I really think if you're living in one of those places, it's not a risk because you try something and then uh, it doesn't work out. And you go back to like one of the, you know, 30 large companies in the area and someone is going to be looking for, for work and you're going to know somebody there. Montreal is great. I think Boston, unfortunately is not great. Um, I think I think there's not quite this sort of um, uh, um, critical mass of large companies to, to support it.
3: But. So, uh, <laughs> speaking of instability in the industry, I've recently actually been laid off from my first full-time job in the industry. So, uh, and one thing I'm very thankful for right now is that the job market seems fairly kind to programmers because <clears throat> the... There's pretty much always somebody who wants to hire programmers. So even though I've only been looking a little while, I've already got kind of an an idea of where to look for things. And there's just... I think there's enough game companies in in Boston that it it should be possible to find something. So, uh, so, So anyway, you guys can be assured that all the job search advice I've been giving you, I am, in fact, practicing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and question?
0: Thanks. So I'm kind of curious. Uh,
7: this is mostly a question for Damien and Rob. Um, when you guys went to found Moonshot Games, what kind of led you from going to a established game company into you know, making that break and making the decision to go into Moonshot? Um, was it more of a idea of, we
0: have a design that we're not getting a chance to work on right now? Or was it something else? I think that
6: would apply to Ethan as well. Because yeah, I think you basically did the same move. Uh,
4: I mean, at the time, I know f- for me personally, like I was just like super inspired by the stuff that was going on in the indie space like that was those were the the days of uh, you know braid and castle crashers and um, you know f- for a little while for a brief instant, it really looked like a small talented team could basically just make a competent game and and make it obviously we we didn 't want to make merely competent games we wanted to make great games, but Um, it was looking really viable at the time and um, I I don't know if it's less viable now but there's sure as hell like way more competition so I think we I mean I personally I just looked at what was being done in those spaces I felt like man like that is there is way more innovation happening um, at that at that uh, in those size teams than I'm seeing in the larger studios and I I personally felt like you know we could do that kind of innovation and really uh, be successful. Um, and yeah.
6: I'll, I'll give a slightly different answer. I was really pissed off <laughs> <laughs> uh, specifically some, some people back in college, which is why I ended up leaving. Uh, and you know very much I just wanted to work with people who I liked and who I respected and who I knew shared a lot of the same goals and ideals for you know what makes a good game, a good story. Um and, and so you know Damian and I just started talking about it and the idea of like yeah we can make our own fucking thing. That's awesome. Let's do it. That that was really where it came from for me. So
2: um I guess for me it's it's partly uh the things they've touched on about creative control and, and, and being able to work on your own ideas. And for me, uh it's also a lot about just a couple uh aspects of my personality. One, that I really like doing a big variety of things. Uh, and I like working in a place where I might go in one day and spend it entirely on game design, and the next day record people shouting into a microphone, and the next day write some music, and the next day do some programming, and so on. Um, I love that. Um, and, and some people really don't love that and want to know what their job is, and want to do it, and don't want you to ask them to do other stuff. Um, uh, and the other thing is just I like small teams. I like knowing all of the people that I work with. I like knowing their names <laughs> and what they're like and so on. And uh, if you're working on a team of 200, 300 more people, it's really hard to do that. It's really hard to feel like you have any clue what's going on sometimes.
1: I've I, I certainly heard stories where uh, in some of the really large companies that are working on multiple projects at once. And someone working on a different floor might as well be in a completely different company, uh, it, uh, especially if they're working on a different project. Um, so, so even though you, know, you might end up working at a company that has you know, huge projects, that, that the ones that you love, not everybody, the chances are they're going to learn everybody's names in the building is very low. That could be cool too. And so you still got to make that, that effort.
4: But I feel like it's kind of like being in high school again, or something like that. If you enjoyed high school, that's one thing. But like, you didn't know everyone's name in high school. But like, you know a lot of people. You have your circles. Like you, you know, if you need to talk to somebody, you have some direct connection to them. I mean, it is cool. It it is really cool to have. Um, I mean, I mean, I know it sounds big, but like a three hundred to four hundred person company is like it's not that big. I mean, you can learn three hundred names, and um, and. Uh, And there's something cool to meeting people, new people all the time who come from interesting places. And um, I don't know. I'm just being – I'm being a cheerleader for large companies right now. But, like, there's just something wondrous about, like, having the resources of, like, 400 people behind everything you do that is just – yeah. I mean, given, given everything, I probably still would be at a small company, but, like, uh, yeah, I, I always have a positive experience at large companies as well.
1: I wonder, a lot of tech companies, of course, are, you know, especially the ones in the Boston area operating at that size, and they have <coughs> events for folks in the company to get to know each other socially outside of the, uh, outside of the, the projects. And I'm wondering if, you know, uh, those work? Do you actually get to meet people there or just end up clicking your own group, because that's what I do when I go to a unique MIT (laughs) social event. I think it's it's a matter of
2: personality, largely. I I don't want to know 300 people, I don't think.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think that's time for maybe one more question.
2: Um, Hi, so I'm Royal. Things that I've been wondering is so the games background I'm currently getting here is a lot in like indie games, but specifically personal narrative games. So playing games where, like anthropy Dysphoria, Conversations with My Mother, and like also building those kinds of games. And so how does that kind of game design and development experience go into wanting to have a commercial career? And also like is there a place for a gender studies, ethno- uh, ethnic, ethnic? Uh, ethnographer kind of background in the games industry.
5: I guess I will say games of that genre are made as art games, which means that they will generally have to be uh, independently published. Um, I know that what a lot of, uh, especially those those game presenters in particular are doing, are um, Patreon, um, you know, uh, crowdfunding their own games, um, so as far as I know, none of those specifically are, you know, being made in the, um, like, bigger indie space, um, beca- especially because since games like that are, uh, like, personal narrative games, um, it kind of doesn't really make sense to work on them, you know, collaboratively in, in big groups, um, but, you know, if you... Make those kinds of games, then you know that experience is definitely helpful in you know going into you know other genres and getting into you know the indie or AAA space um, and having that design philosophy with you, I guess, is also helpful to bring, in, you know, bring, bring a different perspective to it.
3: Uh, You mentioned gender studies. Uh, So one uh, networking opportunity that hasn't come up besides Boston Indies and so on is the Women in Games group, which generally meets monthly. And so uh, there have been some really interesting talks about that kind of thing in games. Uh, One I particularly liked was Heather Albano from Choice of Games talking about uh, how they handled uh, (coughs) gender and sexuality issues in games where you're allowed to choose the player's gender so uh, I think and if you're, you're interested in games that do this sort of thing, you should uh, <clears throat> hang around that group and there will be people who like to talk about that sort of thing.
1: Are they meeting in uh, Harvard Square as
3: well? Uh, I think they're also in Harvard Square now, yes.
4: I think a lot of us also have like a lot of respect for those kinds of games, even though those are not the kind of games that we necessarily make or that are necessarily commercially viable. Um, there's still, I think, a lot of I think there's a lot of interest. I think there's a general feeling that one day, I don't want to be the capitalist too much here, but one day someone's going to make a lot of money on a personal narrative game and open up a whole new genre, and everyone's interested in that from both a commercial and from an artistic point of view. So, I mean, I think if, if you have a background in that and have, you know, have a game that you've designed that is really interesting in that way, I think that's a great portfolio piece as long as you understand that you may not be doing anything like that. Uh, you you might be balancing damage levels, you know, between different weapons. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. Okay. Uh, once again, I want to thank all of the panelists uh, for, for <laughs>
1: everyone here for coming. Uh, just before we wrap up, a uh, couple of uh, quick announcements. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah can yeah, take your seat. Thanks again. <laughs> so I'm going to um, briefly just like to close out are some of the resources that I actually love our fans to talk about um, that are offered both by the MIT game lab, by the studies writing, but then just also um, things that are happening out at MIT a little bit. Uh, so classes, yes, you can study games at MIT, as I said. Here is the class list. Uh, so this is a very small, small, select list of classes. Um, it's really just um, the classes that are taught by the MIT Game Lab at Studies. Um, we have basically a group of four tiers of classes. It looks like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven classes total. Um, but you can take um, and get a really good, basic, all-around experience with many different aspects of the game development process, from production to programming, uh, design, um, you'll have to do some art and have to do some music in these things, so we're going to touch a little bit about that too. Um, and in some of these are actually going to have um, some experience working with outsourced art, and outsourced music. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that in a little bit. But basically, breaks down to two 300 level um, introduction courses one to video game theory and analysis, and the other to game design methodologies. Uh, then two mid-tier levels, uh, basically creating content for games um, and designing games. So writing for video games and then game design, which is actually a non-visual um, game design class. Um, after that, then you have the 610, and 611. So 610 is at Media Industries and Systems, the art, science, and business of games, um, taught by Chris Weaver, um, who's actually he's an alum, is that right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, he's a SM? Yeah. Uh, and he was originally with uh, Bethesda Softworks. <coughs> Uh, that and creating video games class, um, Philip, me, and uh, Sarah teach. Uh, basically, on the production process of games, um, how do you form a team? How do you um, how do you get on the same page? Things like that. Schedule. Schedule. it's, I mean, it's really about a oh, crap that ten people and none of us have through time at the same time as each other. What are we going to do? So you do a lot. Of, we to learn quite a bit about um, remote management in that class, even though it's not on the syllabus. That's really yeah. yet. And then uh, at the end, you can round out your, uh, your, your development studies with uh, this advanced game studio. It's basically an advanced class, it's a full semester um, making, making one single game. Uh, I list these this way because if you take four of these plus one required CMS class, you can basically get a concentration compared to the studies at MIT So to supplement your, your already existing uh, course. Because we don't have a game development course uh, uh, degree, we don't have a game design degree. Uh, here at MIT, yet somehow we've been on the Princeton Review since it started um, looking at game design courses. We've been listed there as one of the top ten. So a lot of that's due to having a good place to concentrate your studies here at at the MIT Game Lab, but also a lot of that is bringing in people from multiple disciplines at at MIT, bringing them together on interdisciplinary teams, and learning from each other, Um, having architecture architecture students work with CMS, work with Course 6. You get a really good um, experience there. Um, so, this coming spring, um, three, actually four classes, but I only made three slides, unfortunately. Um, CMS301 is brand new on um, this next semester, Introduction to Game Design Methodologies. If you took CMS608, um, it's going to borrow a little bit from that. If you took 611, it's going to borrow a little bit of that. Basically, we took all of the production, all of, sorry, all the prototyping, iteration, playtesting, elements that we used in all of our classes and mashed them together with one awesome Class also involves a little bit of user research and design research. So it's a really good introduction to design research class as well. Uh, we're teaching CMS C- 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 608 so game design, uh, design and analysis of non digital games. So you can make bar games, card games, live action games, and other types of non digital games. Uh, the prerequisite for this is one other CMS course, of course preferably with a writing requirement. Um, so um, one of those like HOTS uh, CI requirement classes would be good. 300 or 301 both fall on that. Actually, I should mention that too. Uh, 1 are has CI requirements, so if you need a communications requirement and you want to do it with games, you can do it with those. Uh, but yeah, advanced game studio, you're going to put your skills to the test and spend an entire semester creating a complete and polished game. Um, the difference here between this class and 6.11 is you're doing it without our help. We're not teaching you the production process because it's a prerequisite, you're supposed to have taken 6.0. Um, what we're going to be doing is um, you have to refine the visual and audio aesthetic, so that means figuring out what it's going to be and how you're going to do it with the materials you have on hand. When you start this course, you have to sign up with a team on hand, at least a core team that's developing the game. Um, once you're in the course, we'll help you try to find other, uh, other people to, to work with you on art and audio, um, per, um, particularly uh, working with students from Berkeley College of Music, uh, working with students from Rhode Island School of Design, and some of the other local art schools and, and music schools in the area. Uh, We've got a pretty good network of of instructors out there. We could probably find people to outsource some of that material there uh, for you. Um, Your team did that, not that, right? Yes. So one team did it, and it was successful. Um, And then, yeah, and it's basically a weekly seminar on advanced game design topics. So you're only meeting once a week, and you're meeting during those weeks both to um, let let the instructors know the status of your game, but also to to learn something new about game design and game development, uh, largely taken from uh, our friends in the industry. Uh, otherwise, uh, here's other courses taught at comparative media studies that um, touch on games. Uh, all these are on the, the flyers that I put out in the front there. Uh, you have things like oh, games and social change, games and culture, taught by um, T.L. Taylor. a uh, new faculty member at CMS this year. Um, and a lot of these are actually taught by those other research departments at comparative, at comparative media studies. So things like um, computer games, relations for investigation and, yeah, investigation and education. Basically uh, taught by the Shiller Teacher Education Program, um, Eric Hopford, for the most part. Um, they, and they would get really good um, guest lectures, too. I uh, think we brought in Still LeBron, the designer for the latest SimCity and Left la- uh, last year. Um, yeah, and then for human computer interaction design, um, communicating with web-based media, and communicating with mobile technology if you want to do web apps or mobile apps, that's a great place to go to. If you go to gamelab.mit.edu slash study, We've gone through the MIT syllabus, and I updated it about once a year, with courses that we found offered at MIT that touch on some of those basic skills that you might want to know, um, places like the visual arts classes, the architecture classes, um, music classes, which I'm going to add a new one to it um, this year. Um, but yeah, we, try to, we try to find other classes to, to help broaden your studies while you're at MIT, like this that you can take to, to, to you know, become better game designers, become better game developers. Otherwise, you can work with us on research, um, conducting original research on on games, play, and other aspects of game development. That's likely through our Undergraduate research opportunity program. Um, It's generally available based on active research we have conducted at the lab. So right now, we've only got a few. um, It goes, the the number of um, year ops we have available goes up and down each semester. Um, And you'll likely either be doing um, user studies, um, so assisting an ethnographer doing interviews, or doing play testing for existing game designs or you're going to be creating new games with us or tools with us to help us make games. Um, I should also mention that um, we do a lot of advising and research advising for students, especially in Course 6. If you're looking at doing your UAP or your UAT, you can have one of us as one of your advisors, um, Drew, who I think just left, here, left the room already. But Andrew Grant, our technical director, offers um, generally you can be an advisor for a lot of UAP projects. If you want to do an independent study, either through Course 6 or through CMS, um, that's possible as well. And if you actually have a really good research idea that you want to do, especially if it's based on something you've, you've learned in one of these classes and you want to take it on your own, um, if you can convince one of us to be your advisor, we'll do that for you. Uh, and then lastly, some events. Uh, you can make, play and learn games. game. I uh, have games at our events. And the, the big ones coming up, uh, January for the game line is the game of the Arcade, the, the month of the Arcade. Um, we're going to spend this January writing about making games for arcade cabinets. We have two arcade cabinets installed at MIT. One at the MIT Museum, which has some games of ours from 2010. And another arcade cabinet over at CMS. And they do games, so we want people to make games for them. Um, during the uh, December, during the exam period, we're going to watch some movies about, about the arcade. Um, this as a little bit of a study break thing. But then during January, this first week of IAP, we have an arcade seminar series. It's um, every day, Monday through Friday, uh, 1 to 5 p.m. Uh, none of this is listed on our website yet. It will be um, once you get back from the holiday, um, once we have all the information set up. But basically, it's a, you can come, you don't have to come for every single um, session. You can just drop in um, for any one of them or any many of them. Um, you'll have a lecture, either from one of us or a guest lecture, um, getting the, the MIT alums who created uh, Ms. Hackman, uh, which originally was called Crazy Auto. We're going to come in and talk about the process behind making this Pac-Man, why, why it exists at all. Um, we're going to have um, some people talk about Combat, I think, the Atari 2600 game, and a couple other uh, interesting things and some of game design things. And we'll do workshops at the end of that, too, to kind of prepare you. If you haven't taken one of our game design courses or game prototyping courses, we'll have some workshops there to kind of like, get you started in, in what game design is all about. Um, that Saturday afterwards, we're going to have a very short game jam. Uh, the idea here is that we get a bunch of you and a bunch of people from other local schools to come together and form teams. Um, by the end of that Saturday, by about 7 p.m., hopefully you'll have a team, you'll have an idea, you'll have some working code, you'll have seen the, the cabinet and seen the, the hardware you're going to use for the game, and you're going to start making a plan to make, the, make a game. By the end of the month, you'll have a finished game. Um, but you'll be working on your own. Um, between that Saturday and the end of the month, we're going to have some test sessions going on where you can actually test out your games with the communities, with, the, with your audiences at CMS and at the MIT Museum. Um, so you can do some play testing there. And then hopefully if everything goes right, we're gonna install those games in February. But if it takes a little bit extra time, it'll it take some extra time, that's okay. Uh, but the idea here is to make really interesting, fun little games with really, really hard, concrete technical constraints. Uh, the arcade cabinets have 800 by 600 um, pixels, so a really small resolution, on a CRT monitor. So it's gonna really look like and feel like the old arcades. Um, a very specific type of joystick, so this is an interesting game design challenge. And then, lastly, in uh, IAP, we have a global game jam. Um, it's January twenty-fourth to 26th. It's free for um, all current MIT students uh, and twenty dollars for non-students. Um, registration is there. Basically, you spend forty-eight hours making games with people you may or may not know. And again, um, like our panelists, it's a really great uh, networking opportunity. Um, so yeah, there's the website there, um, mitgamelab gtj 2014eventbreakcom You can also find this on the gamelab.mit.edu site. And i will leave this up as we end. Um, if you want to find more about the MIT Game Lab, here's all our info. Uh, definitely join out for our mailing list, especially the, the mailing list for students, gamelab-students.info.atmit.edu. That's where a lot of our event information like this goes out. And every Friday during the semester, just drop by. Um, we're over 26, just over there. Uh, room 153, every Friday we play games from about 4 to 5 o'clock on the street and on, on Twitch TV. Um, so yeah, thank you all for coming.